Clockwork Flower, written by Michael Stevens, Book 1, Aries Adventure, Introduction. It was early July 27th, an ordinary Tuesday. Well, at least that's what most people would have seen. There I was, laying in the grass in the middle of Manhattan Central Park, the effervescence of evaporated water tickling my nose as I stared up at the brightening sky of daybreak. The yellows, oranges, teals filled my eyes with beauty. To me, the world had a certain level of magic. It's just no one paid enough attention. To them, everything is just ordinary. To me, ordinary can easily become the extraordinary. With a deep breath and some focus, attention to detail, I suppose. My mom always said, Aries, get your head out of the clouds. Pay attention when I'm talking to you, please. I hated this for two reasons. One, she used my real name. Since I can remember, I made everyone call me Ari. The thing is, I hate my name. Not the name itself, but the story behind it. See, my mom teaches history. She has a PhD in mythological studies. When she found out she was pregnant with me, I guess her and my father, whoever he is, fought a lot about whether or not to have me. So much so, she told him to scram, because she was going to have me whether he liked it or not. Well, he did. Thus, giving her the clever idea of naming me Ares, after the Greek god of war. To her, it was the perfect name. To me, it's just a reminder I was unwanted before I even had a chance. Like a scar on my very soul. Two, if she only knew how much I actually paid attention. Yeah, I get it. I don't hear her when she's talking because I'm so focused on the minor things. Like the way the coffee smelled, when its freshly brewed aroma has a calming effect on my lungs. Or the way the sun glinted off the window just right, making it so you could see the rays of light break down into a gradient with the colors of the rainbow. I guess listening to people talk was at the bottom of my priorities, unless I found what they were saying beneficial or stimulating. I assume it's because of my attentive priorities. I was diagnosed with attention deficit disorder when I was a kid. My mom tried to medicate me, but I refused because the meds made me feel like nothing more than a zombie. She did have something right. My head was in the clouds, and at this very moment, that's exactly where I was. There was nothing more ethereal than watching an early morning sunrise. The colors of the world are so perfect in that moment. Everything had a glow to it. The stillness of the world, quiet and serene. The birds waking with twitters and chirps. The breeze rustling the leaves on the trees like a faint chorus of a snare drum. The dew of the grass dampening the ground and air simultaneously. The noisy city far from my mind. The softness of my heartbeat with a rise and fall of my breath like a melody. What in the hell is that sound? I yelled aloud. If any passerby were to see me, they would have thought I was nuts. That ticking was making me nuts. That was for sure. It had no place in this moment. I had to find out where it was coming from. I jumped up, racing toward the sound high and low, as if I were a panicked rabbit running from a hungry fox. Almost to the bridge, I heard the ticking growing louder and louder. It felt as though it was everywhere, maybe even inside me. My pulse was racing with fear or excitement. At this point, I couldn't tell which. Then, like a car crash, time came to a halt, and I saw it. A golden glow just under the bridge. It was an ornate flower, a cross between the inner workings of a clock and a Fabergé egg. The flower itself was closed, like I hadn't seen the light of day, but beautiful nonetheless. I hurriedly picked it up from the ground, hiding it with my jacket. I had to study it. I had to see it open. It was the strangest thing, like I knew this was just the beginning of something bigger than myself. Chapter 1 Forever Fields The run home was a blur of city lights, car horns, and nameless faces. Didn't have time to take it all in. Only thoughts of this clockwork flower echoed in my head. What is this thing? Who made it? What's inside? And finally, 
How do I make it bloom? Reaching the home where my mom and I stayed. It was a nice place. It reminded me of a loft and an old firehouse. Windows that let light in, but you couldn't really see out of. I loved it. It was so open with plenty of space. My mom picked it out just after we moved to Manhattan when I was seven. The brown hardwood floors, reds and whites of the walls, from the brick and mortar, some half plastered over, the black wrought iron of the railings. Man, since day one I was in love, like it was my own superhero hideout. So many good memories. I quickly ran to an iron spiral staircase that led to the upstairs, which resembled an inverted veranda. My room was up there. Or rather, my study, because my mind bounced from subject to subject, and I'd often hyperfixate on new hobbies. It was littered with chemistry sets, art supplies, books, stacked from floor to ceiling, along with a wide variety of other tools from my many previously pursued hobbies. I burst through my door, tripping over a pile of dirty clothes. I clutched my nearest prize tight to my chest. As I began tumbling towards my writing desk, I landed not so elegantly into my computer chair, spinning rapidly before slowing to a stop and sliding out onto my head. I heard something rolling across the hardwood floor, and opened my previously wincing eyes. The clockwork was teetering to a halt about three feet from me. With a groan, I collected myself, rubbing my head as I picked up the curious mechanical flower bulb. I set it on the desk. As I dug through the messy top drawer, till I found an old magnifying glass, sitting down to take a better look at the clockwork and all its intricacies, I saw right away it was definitely made to open. Each petal had an almost micrometer gap, and at the base were latches. I turned it over and over, looking for a button, a switch, a keyhole, anything. But I was left with more questions than answers. I found nothing. I fumbled through my chaotically sorted drawers and grabbed for some tweezers. I tried to pull the pedal back, but it snapped shut without hesitation. A chisel? Nope, wouldn't budge. Aha! A soldering iron. Maybe I could take the pedals off. I heated up the pen, impatiently checking it often. Ouch! I burnt my finger. Carefully, I placed the tip of the soldering pen to the fine latch. But something strange happened. Instead of the latch melting, the tip began to melt away, backwards till it disappeared altogether, almost as if the flower superheated the soldering iron itself. I spent hours trying to get this clockwork to do my bidding. I tried a micro screwdriver, no screws, chemical reaction, no damage to the flower, but it did leave a sizable hole in my writing desk. My best attempt was tacking wire loops to the table, pulling several pedals down, four out of what looked like fifty, and the damn clockwork flower snapped shut with such a force it jumped off the writing desk, sealing itself shut again. I got so frustrated at this point, I took a hammer with a running start and tried to smash the flower, and that's when things got even weirder. As soon as the hammer made contact. Or would have made contact. It was propelled through the air by a blindingly bright blue light flying through the air. The hammer hit my bedroom door, implanting itself into its thick wooden face. Trying to retrieve my hammer was like trying to pull Excalibur from the stone. I could literally pull myself up with it. Finally, by planting both my feet onto the door and pulling with my whole body. I retrieved my hammer and fell backwards onto the floor. Laying there, I gazed upward to the ceiling of my room. That's when I saw it. Letters made of blue light, hovering just inches from my ceiling. They looked like they were written in futhark or something similar. I scrambled to my feet. I knew I had books on Norse and Gaelic. I quickly copied the letters down before I began my search. Looking through piles of books with every variation of runic language I could think of, nothing matched. Frustrated and feeling defeated, I banged my head against the top of my writing desk. The vibrating rattled the wall and the hanging bookcase just above me. 
filled with childhood books. The rattle sent a haphazard Lang book tumbling down with a crack onto the desk. Lang opened cover side up. I read the title, Fairies, Fae, and Magical Beings. I picked it up. I remember I was fond of the pictures, though I don't think I ever actually read the thing. But it's what got me into art to begin with. Seeing all the elves and gnomes, fairies and pixies illustrated so well, they were almost lifelike. But when I turned it over, there was a grid with runes, the title of which was The Magical Alphabet of the Fae Translation Guide. This was it. I'd spent the next hour getting the translation. Human destruction doesn't blossom or create. Only the sweetness of the Fae can open the gate. Whatever that meant. But it's a start. I began thumbing through the book. Fae sweetness? What is that? It's gotta be in here. Nice and tante like porridge and butter. Brownies prefer bread and butter. Pixies like pears and marlow fruit. Fairies like saffron, sweet butter, milk, honey, sweet cakes. Hmm. It's a long shot, but I'll try it. I ran and grabbed the honey we left in the center of the white granite countertop of the kitchen island. Well, this is possibly the dumbest idea I've had all night. I spoke aloud to myself, looking at the clock. 2 a.m. Oh, that would be why. I smirked decidingly as I let a drop of honey fall in slow motion to the center of the clockwork. Nothing. Well, back to the book. I grabbed it and turned around. A bright blue light filled the room again, only this time it sucked me backwards. As the portal swallowed me in, I can only imagine the clockwork flower snapping shut again. As I came to a screeching halt in a field of purple grass, I heard a snickering behind me. Ah, hello, ah, and welcome to the forever fields. Ah. A blue imp, resembling the one I saw in the book earlier, was sitting on a signpost in the middle of the field. But there were no roads. So why a signpost? If you're wondering why it's called the Forever Fields, it's because you've been sitting on your butt forever. The name's Grip. What's yours, Smelly? I scrambled to my feet, brushing off my pants. I looked around, bewildered and amazed. My new surroundings were like nothing I'd ever seen before. Purple rolling grass fields. Orange skies and mushrooms as tall as the trees. The trees themselves bore what looked like every fruit imaginable, instead of one or the other. The air was filled with weird and new sounds, along with scents I couldn't recognize, but delighted in. Everything here was so different and so refreshing. Come, well, boy. The impatient imp Grip said, picking his long blue nose. His bulbous head tilted backward, his red, clean-cut mohawk the same color as the sign he sat upon. Letting his mouth hang open, his even longer tongue rolling from side to side, obviously enjoying the excavation of his nose a little too much. He hopped a bright green glob onto a nearby white, almost translucent bush. I snapped back into the present situation and spoke boldly, as if not to seem afraid. Aries, D'Angelo LaCroix, at your service. <laughs> stupid surfacer, don't you know anything? Never give your name to the Fae. A wide and malevolent grin stretched from one pointed and pierced ear to the other. He pointed at me with his long knobby fingers, his fingernails a yellow-brown, having a similar look of wood grain and sharp. With his other hand, he grabbed a potion bottle filled with purple liquid from his belt. Tossing it toward me, hitting the ground, the bottle broke, causing a chemical reaction. The liquid turned to gas as it rose up and engulfed me in its purple vapors. It was then I felt a click on my wrists. When the gaseous cloud had cleared, I saw my wrists were bound in a medieval-like form of handcuffs. Only they weren't the typical iron. They were made of a strange steel I was unfamiliar with. Linked together by chain, a lead from me to my captor. No, you can't. I didn't know. I don't even know where I am, I pleaded with grip. Stop shouting, Surfacer. You're mine now. You will do as I say, he barked back. Please, 
At least tell me where I am. I begged, allowing my fear to show. Fine then. If you must know, you're in Underhill. Grip responded in a matter-of-fact way. Underhill? I questioned, still uncertain of where or even when I was. Yes, yes. You surfacers have given us many names over the years. The center of the Earth, the Underworld, Lumeria, Kiernanog, Magamel, Fairyland, Elfheim, and possibly the most stupid name of all, Wonderland. Grip spoke increasingly agitated, spitting again at the word Wonderland. Those can't all be the same place, can they? I asked more confused than before. Yes, they can, and they are. So you stupid surfacers come down here through caves and tunnels and sinkholes, and each of you think you're the first one to lay eyes on the place and decide to make up some stupid name instead of just asking. But that's a surfacer for you, always trying to control things. That's why we left the surface in the first place. Grip began to rant. He must have had a lot pent up. I couldn't believe it. A whole world just under our noses. This whole time, it held such beauty. It was magnificent. Except for my captor. He was quite an odd fellow. The more he talked, however, the less frightened I got. And that silly little girl went around eating mushrooms and hallucinating because she found out she can't get the food here or she'll get stuck. She had no rhyme or reason. And can you believe she kept mistaking me for a cat? The nerve. And all this business about a red queen trying to take her head. How stupid she'd feel if she realized she was just standing there, frightened of a tavern sign for hours on end, muttering to herself. Had to make her chase a rabbit back to the surface. Dumb girl. He couldn't be serious. Well, at least he wasn't paying any attention to me. Maybe I could escape. I began to back up. The handcuffs sent a shockwave through me and I cried out. Not gonna work, boy. Magic binding, silly no-nothing surfacer. Rip said nonchalantly as he hopped down from the signpost, came hobbling toward me. Stop calling me that. You can call me Ari. I'm not stupid either. I bellowed, with a mix of pain and frustration. Hmm... That remains to be seen, are we? My captain spoke with a laugh. Come now, it's time we were off. I can fetch a pretty price for a surfacer slave with the blacksmith in Bramblehaven. He said, pulling the chain lead. Though he was only as tall as my knee, he was as strong as a full-grown man. The pull was more than I expected, and it jerked me forward into a stumble. Tell me, are we? How did you fall from the sky when most surfacers come through caves? I haven't seen that before. Grip questioned, looking over his shoulder as we got onto the dirt path, following the sign's arrow to Bramblehaven. Well, I'm not exactly sure. There was this clockwork flower and I... Clockwork flower, you say? The imp interrupted, looking nervous, beads of green sweat appearing on his forehead. He began looking around for something. That's enough of your lies, surfacer. He burst out and pulled Hall on the chain, forcing me to stumble again. It's not a lie, I protested. No more out of you until we reach Bramblehaven. His demeanor changed completely. I squinted my eyes, knowing there's something more behind his sudden change in behavior. And I'm going to find out exactly what it is. Chapter 2 Bramblehaven. Grip pulled me by my chain bindings into a small fey village of Bramblehaven. A village with a quaint capacity. Stone huts with gnarled roots like thatch roofing. Cabins made of thick lumber. Teepees that were made of huge bones and tied with thick black hair. A combination of what seemed like many cultures. A melting pot of the fey kind. A mix of childhood daydream and nightmare. Imagination personified into a town unlike any I had ever seen. There were merchant stalls selling their wares, totems, scrolls, potion bottles, shrunken heads, sweet-smelling breads and berries. The population looked to be made up of 
goblins and fairies, sprites, dryads, nymphs, sylphs, dwarfs, hags, and countless other beings I've never seen with my own eyes, other than in childhood books. We came to a stop in front of an open-faced hut, a glow of hot ember and molten lava emanating from the rear. The sound of metal clanks and bangs rattled my ears. Grip gave a hard tug on the chain. It forced me to sprawl into the dusty and cracked clay rail. A cloud of dust filled my mouth as I gasped from the hard blow. Hitting the ground, I looked up at my captor, a malevolent grin on his face. Sit. Stay. Good, surfacer. He latched my chain to a post outside. How degrading to be treated like nothing more than a dog. I watched as Grip entered the building. He puffed his chest out and began to saunter to the back. A huge figure emerged from the shadows, wearing what looked like leather overalls carrying ingots of metal in every shade of the rainbow. His long brown hair and braided beard framed his very round face. Only his bulbous nose, rounded cheeks, and bright fluorescent blue eyes shone through the copious amount of hair this oversized man had. I assumed this was the dwarf Grip had mentioned. I could see them talking. The dwarf dropped the ingots to the ground, clapping dust from his hands as he bellowed a huge laugh. Grip looked around nervously. His face turned into a lavender. I could almost swear he had the look of embarrassment about him. The two walked toward me. Grip stayed behind, looking at his feet and rubbing the back of his mohawk like he was ashamed. The face of the dwarf stooped down to see me, and he smiled. Laughing, he grabbed me by the back of the shirt and lifted me to my feet. Hello, little one. A bit lost, are we? Seems you've been tricked by our friend here. Lucky for you, he brought you to one of the few honest blacksmiths in all Underhill. A look of confusion passed over my face. Tricked? I asked with hesitation. I tricked, lad. He winked as he said this. Velgrim Hammerstone, pleasure to meet your acquaintance. See, though old Grip has a point, you shouldn't tell a fae your name. He ain't exactly fae kind. More goblin kind, really. They're close cousins, goblins and imps, you see. So he don't own you like a fae would. Nothing more than a smoke bomb and a sleight of hand. Imps are tricky devils. My eyes burned with anger as I stared Grip down over Felgrim's shoulder. He covered his head and dove behind the counter of Felgrim's shop. Now, Grip informed me he lost the key when he offered to sell you to me. And seeing how you're not his to sell, and I don't need help in me shop, how about we set you free? He pulled a pointed hammer from his tool belt. He had barely tapped the metal binding with a small flick of his wrist, causing the metal to burst like it was made of nothing more than fine china. Ha! Huh. Goblin steel. May as well be worthless. Felgrim said haughtily, I heard that. A green, boil-covered goblin, staring from an adjacent blacksmith's stall, spat. Nothing that ain't true, Bloodbog. That right, Boyle? He patted my back. The kind gesture felt like a sledgehammer. I choked on the air, escaping my lungs. Not wanting to be in this awkward exchange, and unsure of what to say, I made a face somewhere in between a grimace of pain and a smirk. The goblin, Bloodbog, just stared hollow-eyed, working his jaw like a cow chewing cut, before spitting a tar-like goop to the clay ground. I couldn't seem to look away. Bloodbog scooped up the clay in the black tar mixture with a garden spade. Slopping it into a mold on a bed of coal, he shook his head. Getting my bearings back, I remembered that stupid, frustrating imp who had been degrading me for hours on the way to this village. My face grew hot with anger as I bolted for him. Revenge on my mind. Suddenly I was running in midair as I realized Thelgrim had picked me up by the back of my shirt again and had me dangling over the ground. Feisty bugger, aren't you? Anyway, slow down, little one. Forgive it, it's in his nature. 
Tricks are at heart. Felgrim said in his kind but booming voice, Let me down! I quipped in frustration. Not till you promise to not hurt our friend there. The dwarf smiled. He's no friend of mine. I shouted and tried running in place again. That may be so, but it could be. Things are often not what they seem down here. So, promise. Felgrim wisely spoke. Fine, I promise. Just put me down. I gave in, knowing I'd be stuck in the air if I hadn't. Grip's head popped up from behind the counter, shaking like a cold chihuahua. He put his hands up like he was under arrest. See? Not so bad. He's just a frightened fella. Now, he said he came to us in a peculiar way. Come inside and have a chat. Let's see what we can make of your story. Felgrim said, pointing at Grip and ushering me inside. Walking into the blacksmith shop was an otherworldly feeling. I mean, obviously it was. But the awe I was feeling was indescribable. Any other way falls short. We made our way to the back of the shop, where there was a square table with intricate Celtic designs, carved from leg to tabletop, seemingly filled with gold. It paired well with the deep red of the wood the table was made from. We sat across from one another, Grip scrambled in like a surprised and frightened cat, knocking things over as he dashed through the room with two mugs, setting them on the table. So, Grip tells me you traveled here by clockwork. Is this true? Felgrim asked with a pointed stare. Well, yeah, I found this flower under the bridge. The flower? Hmm. Interesting. Felgrim interrupted me mid-sentence. Did it call to you, boy? Felgrim asked in a hushed tone, like it was life or death situation. What do you mean, call to me? I inquired, getting the feeling the dwarf knew more about the curious flower than I did. I mean, did you hear it before you saw it? He boomed, before looking around like he made some mistake. Well, did you? He followed up with a whisper. Yeah. I stammered, starting to feel anxious about this whole thing. What did I get myself into? To my amazement, Felgrim grinned like a child on Christmas Day. Your hands, boy. Let me see your hands. I hesitantly put my hands out. This was the first time I even looked at a part of me since I got here. As I turned my palms over, I saw a glowing green circular light right in the palm of my hand. Ah! I shrieked, pulling my hand back and shaking it vigorously, trying to put out the non-existent flame or beasting. However, my hand kept on glowing. The circular light had some sort of design inside quite like the Seal of Solomon I had seen in one of my metaphysical books I kept at home. Felgrim grabbed my hand quickly, hushing me, looking over his shoulder, almost as if he felt eyes upon him. Yes, this is it. He said to himself as he pressed his giant thumb into my palm. It turned the glowing green light into a golden streams bursting from my hand. I watched as the golden light lit Felgrim's face, and as I looked on with a mix of horror and awe, the flower materialized in my hand, slowly at first, like golden Tetris cubes falling into place, until it became the entirety of the mysterious clockwork flower that sent me here. As soon as it fully appeared, floating near inches from my palm, the glowing stopped and it fell, bobbling into my hand. In a simultaneous instant, as if someone had just flipped off a light switch, Thalgrim reached down and picked up the curious object between the forefinger and thumb. It was small in comparison to the dwarf's massive calloused hands. He smiled again, shaking his head before placing it back into my hand. They did it. I can't believe they actually did it. He said to himself quietly without taking his eyes off the clockwork. Who did what? I was puzzled at all this new fragmented information. Letting out a heavy sigh, he took a drink from his mug. Casting his eyes to the right, he stared into the glow of the fireplace. To understand that, you'll have to get an underhill history lesson. He began. Long ago, we lived on the surface world. But the surface was haunted many of us, thinking we are beasts or trying to steal our magic away. 
Services have always been afraid of what they don't understand, and they think they can gain that understanding by control, so they'd capture some of us and put us to work in whatever they felt best paired with our magical ability. So the kings of old decided our kind would be safer elsewhere, so they carved out a new home beneath the soil and rock. But even though we separated ourselves from the surface, we found ourselves advancing when your civilizations advanced. We walked parallel to your world until you sought to destroy yourselves with your wars and your bombs. Then some of us decided to go back to the old ways, like here in Bramblehaven. He paused to take another drink, and he looked at me with sadness in his eyes. But some of our kin became obsessed with advancements, far from here in the city of Telmara, where magic and technology become symbiotic. A very different kind of dwarves live. They call themselves the Dwarten. They're good-natured folk, just have an affinity for this new symbiosis. They created seven clockworks. The flower. He nodded towards me. The sword. The shield. The locket. The key. The bangle. And the ball. It is said that they gave each of these to the fairies, who frequently travel between your world and ours through their fairy rings. They were to scatter them across the globe, and one day these talismans would call the Guardians to save our world and theirs. In disbelief, I blurted out, questioning Thelgrim. Guardians? Save the world? Yeah, kiddo. An unfamiliar voice came from the stairway behind Thelgrim. I looked up as I heard a strange sound following the disembodied voice. Chapter 3, Alluin. The sound reminded me of the dragonflies of summer stealing dewdrops from the leaves in the early morning sunrise. The sound belonged to a pixie, who was now making her way down the stairs, buzzing about the same size as the dragonflies I remember fondly. She flew right up to my face before pinching my nose with both of her tiny hands. I reached up and grabbed at my nose. Ow, what the hell was that for? I exclaimed. At the same time I had this knee-jerk reaction, the tiny pixie evaporated in a cloud of smoke before reappearing in front of me at normal human-sized height, leaning onto the table. She giggled. Just saying hi. What's the big deal? She looked like she had just gotten back from an 80s punk rock concert, torn acid-washed jeans and a Carl Ramones t-shirt. She had spiked bracelets to match her equally spiky black hair. Next time, say hi without trying to rip my nose off, okay? I spoke with irritation. She smirked, rolling her eyes. She straightened her posture before turning, giving me a wave to brush away my comment. Oh, stop whining, you big baby. What kind of guardian can't handle a pinch on the nose? Honestly, it's embarrassing. I pushed my chair back and stood up. I'm not a guardian. My voice wavered. I was uncertain of anything at this point. She turned around to face me, her dragonfly-like wings fluttering quickly, making her spin around even faster as she flew back toward my direction. That's not what the little trinket in your hand says. It says you're a guardian, so get used to it. Fine, but I don't know what that means. What's your problem anyway? And why are you dressed like that? I shot back at her. Her face morphed with anger. Her skin turned from pale white to a deep red, and her green eyes went as black as night. What's wrong with the way I dress? Her shout echoed. Nothing. It's just everyone I've seen down here haven't been dressed as modern. Stammered. Her demeanor returned to normal at the blink of an eye. Thanks, Toots. I pride myself on keeping up to date. Besides, I've been to the surface more times than, well... Pretty much anyone. I can't seem to stay away. She said with elation. Being a guardian means you're going to save us from the big baddie. Duh. She rolled her eyes again. For someone who could be so small, she sure had a big attitude. And who is that? I raised my eyebrow. Hitler. She said nonchalantly. Hitler. Like World War II Hitler. That Hitler? But he's dead. Said truly in disbelief now. Nope, 
Wrong again, sugar. He's immortal and he lives here in Underhill. And you and the others are going to stop him from enslaving us and destroying the planet. What? Are you crazy? How? I said flailing my arms like an awkward chicken. I wouldn't call her that if I were you. Rip interrupted. M my mistake, I stuttered. You get a pass this time, Toots. It's a long story. Let's talk and walk. Come on, I know the perfect place. She said, turning and beckoning me to follow. We walked for a while through a quaint fay village till we reached the outskirts where there was a small river blooming with greenery. Small birds chirped alongside strange sounds I'd never heard before. We had stopped here. A giant ladybug-like insect came sauntering down from the nearby stalagmite mountains. I watched it pass and on. I'd never seen a bug the size of a buick, much less one that was a cross between a ladybug and a great horned beetle. Ah, shucks. I'd better tell Helena her lady vine got out again, the pixie said with a crinkle on her nose. But that can wait. You see above the spire? She pointed far into the distance. I followed her gesture with my gaze to a large spire. Above it was a purple vortex. Its crackling of electrically charged ions barely audible from where we stood. It looked terrifying. The purple wisps of cloud formations reminded me of some far-off galaxy. Only in the center, instead of some bright star, was a black hole. That's how he got here. It's right above the biggest city in Underhill. The Minara. The pixie said, sadness welling in her eyes. Why here? Why Underhill? And how did he make that? I shouted, pointing at the vortex. I don't know. All I can say is all his investigation into paranormal led him here, and now he's enslaving our kind. She shouted back. This was when I realized the light seemed to fade, like the dark clouds of the vortex were somehow reaching us. The wings were picking up. I looked to my new friend and saw terror in her eyes. Now I looked behind me, following her gaze, and understood. Above us wasn't some torrential storm, but a giant dragon staring right at us, the wind coming from every beat of its gigantic wings. Teeth dripping with slime, falling to the ground beneath it. I could barely make out the titanium band around its enormous neck, a small square green light blinking on the left side but gave it away. Run! She screamed, already in motion. I followed, but fumbled and fell. I heard the flames scorch the earth behind me. I felt the heat nip at the soles of my shoes. I scrambled to my feet, catching up to my counterpart. She slid on the ground like a major league baseball player, sliding into home. She grabbed a concealed latch on the desert-like ground and pulled open the trap door. We jumped in, closing it behind us. A furious roar followed our descent into the crawl space. She pressed a finger to my lips, hushing my racing mind from pouring out from between them. We sat in silence and listened to its thunderous and confused roars, till finally the last wing beat died off into the distance. A freaking dragon? Dragons are real too. Where have you been? Under a rock? Yes. Everything the human mind has ever written about or imagined is real, in some form or another, she said in a snooty tone. Look, we almost died. Trying to be a little nicer. I mean, I don't even know your name, I said, still in frantic disbelief. It's Alwyn, she said, looking back as she opened the hatch and flew out of the dugout. I climbed the rickety rope ladder and followed Halloween out. What little plant life there was was gone. The earth was black. The passing lady vine from earlier was nothing but a hollow shell, floating in a melted puddle of its own insides. 
Beside the pool, Alwyn sat crying. I walked up to her slowly, placing my hand onto her sip-covered shoulder. She wiped her tears, trying to hide her pain. Let's get this mess cleaned up. She walked to the river and began to move her hands like she was conducting a concerto. The water began to float into the air as she guided them to the surrounding fires. I helped with a wooden bucket I found beside the river. It was nearly night when the last ember died out. I was distracted staring at the clockwork flower I'd pulled from my pocket, wondering how I meant to save them, trying to wipe off the certain blackness from its intricacies. We should wash up too. Alowin's voice echoed as it brought me back to the present moment. You're probably right. I said, feeling exhausted. I placed the clockwork back into my pocket. She grabbed my hand and we waded into the river. When we got in waist-deep, something unimaginable happened. Green and gold light began to surround me, glowing beneath the water. Alowin stepped back. The light was coming from my pocket. I pulled the clockwork out again. Its petals began unfolding as more light came pouring out. I dropped it stunned, and it began to float like a little golden lotus. Swirling beams of light danced in every direction. It cascaded over the burnt plants and scorched ground. It reminded me of the northern lights I had seen on a documentary about Alaska. To our amazement, the plants and earth began to come back to life slowly at first, and then remarkably, even the once dry ground began to fill with grass and flowers. It not only healed it from the dragon's damage, but it fertilized it with a new life. A sound came from our right, like a cross between a moon and a purr, as a six-footed solo stampede headed in our direction. Alan's face alight with delight as she flew to me up with the revived lady vine. Looking around me in every direction, I said the only thing that came to mind. Whoa. Chapter 4. Locket and Key I was still pretty shaken up from my encounter with that fire-breathing monstrosity. My hands trembled as I lifted a glass of Centaurian cider. The barkeep told me his kind invented it by stomping their four hooves on fermented fruit while he dusted the shells behind him with his horse-like tail. I didn't know centaurs wore glasses. I said, feeling a bit fuzzy inside at this point. One too many ciders, I suppose. Obviously, the barkeep took offense. His long hair snapped the air like a whip as he turned his head quickly in my direction. He leaned forward eye-level with me looking just over the brim of his rounded spectacles. I didn't know that all surfaces were so daft, he chortled, adding a, Oh, wait, yes, I did. <laughs> With a snort of air that ruffled my hair, Your eyesight might not be any good, but your lungs weren't great, I mumbled. He shot me a glare, but let me be. I spun on the bar stool and went over to Alan, Elbrum, and Grip who were throwing axes at a target, laughing amongst one another like old friends. Then again, I guess they were. Felgrim and Grip, anyway. Alloway was Felgrim's adopted daughter. He told me he found her in an old silver mine. At first, I guess he thought she was just a gem. So small and bright, but when he picked her up, he could make out her tiny features. It wasn't long until she learned to change size, and that's when she learned to get into trouble. He spoke of it with a laugh that brought a tear to his eye. I could tell they all shared some fond memories, which is why I felt even more like an outsider, walking up to them in the middle of their game. Hey, Ollie, wanna play? Grip spoke, moving around like an orangutan. He had loosened up a lot since we had first met just days ago. Sure, I said, grabbing a throwing axe. I lifted it in a mock manner from watching them. I had never actually done any kind of sport. I aimed at the target. My body swayed from side to side. Come to think of it, I had never drank before. Back home, I wasn't old enough. But down here, the laws were different. I tried to steady myself as I pulled my arm back to throw. A loud bang erupted 
As the front door flew open, startling me, I let go of the axe. They flew wildly around the room, banging off of shields that adorned the walls. Spinning rapidly around a chandelier made of antlers, before releasing itself, spinning straight for the bespectacled barkeep, the centaur ducked. As the axe split open a very expensive-looking bottle on the back wall, the barkeep reared up, slamming his front hooves onto the counter, making himself look even more immense. You're cut off! He shouted in a shrill tone. I looked to my right to see who was coming inside. It was two hooded figures with daggers on their left thighs. One was cloaked in deep purple, and the other in a royal blue. They were slender and agile looking, about my height as well. All the commotion from my desperate attempt to fit in made me stick out even more like a sore thumb. The purple cloaked figure followed the centaur's pointing hand and mad gaze straight to me. Under the purple hood I saw glowing honey brown eyes and flowing cinnamon colored hair. In that short glance I noticed her hair perfectly framed a small silver heart shaped locket made from gears. Time sped up again. I tugged at Thelgrim's sleeve. I think she has another clockwork. I pointed at the shrouded woman who was making her way to her companion. The blue cloaked figure lifted a bag from his belt and motioned to the barkeep to approach. I could see he had jewelry on as well. A golden bracelet with a small key hanging from it. Only the teeth of the key kept morphing and changing. It had to be a clockwork. I couldn't believe it. I looked at Thelgrim, and he must have seen it too, because his dwarven mouth was hanging open in disbelief. He began to march straight for them. The woman saw him and must have seen this gentle giant as a threat, because she tapped her partner on the shoulder, who glanced quickly in our direction before grabbing the bag from the counter. They began a frantic and mad dash down the hallway toward the back door of the tavern. Felgrim kept after them, Alloin, Grip, and I close behind. The chase was on. Wait, we just want to talk. Felgrim shouted, but it was of no use. They kept running. We followed them outside. They had somehow seemingly disappeared into thin air. The alley was empty, quiet, and dark. Some dirt fell onto my head. I brushed it off before looking up. I saw a boot pulling itself onto the roof carefully before disappearing altogether. Alloin gave me a silent nod and flew up after them. As Alloin flew up over the roof, I could hear her yell, Stop! Felgrim grabbed Grip and I by the back of our belts. With his mighty hands, he swung us into the air. Grip landed gracefully onto the roof drawing a dagger in each hand simultaneously. Or we'll slash you to ribbons, he snarled. I, on the other hand, fell face first and skidded to a stop. Alloin looked back at us. Grip, it's not that kind of chase. Put the daggers away. She spoke in a stern tone, looking back at the two cloaked figures. Alloin hushed her voice. We just want to talk. I have a feeling we're on the same side. The hooded figures looked at us. The small of the two giggled at the sight of me laying in a heap. They turned to one another and nodded. The tallest one lifted his bracelet and removed the clockwork key. The two moved their clockworks in unison toward one another. The key began to morph and change to fit the hole in the intricate clockwork locket. When they combined them, they spoke simultaneously. With, With lock, lock and key, we turned turn to three. three. We will not the secrets you keep. Then, with three clicks, purple smoke jettisoned from within the tiny locket. It encircled the roof. They turned silently toward us, standing ominously like statues. The small purple cloaked figure pointed at me, still laying on the roof. You, outsider, speak your truth. She spoke before I could stop myself. The words poured out of my mouth with a groan. Uh, I think I pissed myself. Grip started to laugh aloud. 
while everyone else at least trying to stay for theirs. You, Imp, state your intentions. The tall man in the blue cloak spoke in seriousness. I'm not very good at reading social cues. I try to help, but I make big messes. I want to be good, but people see my skin before they see my heart. Grip blurted out, falling by. Black, how dare you make me say that? Grip turned purple with embarrassment. This time, I laughed. And you, Pixie, your truth. Man spoke, brushing off our silly display. We need your help. We're trying to save Underhill, Toots. You two and him. Pointing to me. Carry three of the seven clockworks, said to be the key to our freedom. Will you help us or not, Shug? We will help, but it isn't safe here. His eyes everywhere. The man said nearly. We have a safe house hidden a few miles west of town. Take the west road till you come to a live tree. Tap the tree three times. It'll show you the way. The two then took a running start and jumped from the building. Reappearing on a black pegasus, they began flying west and out of sight. That's that. Grip said, clapping his hands together, like he was trying to get dirt off them. He went over and unrolled a rope ladder. Once on the ground, we filled Thelgrim in. We decided it would be best to gather supplies and make the trip at dawn. Back at Thelgrim's shop, I went upstairs to change. Thelgrim thought some of his childhood clothing may fit me. I found a red and gold tunic and some pants. Fastening them, they were a little baggy, but would do. Descending down the stairs, I could see they were all packed up. Bags covered the large oaken table. Let's get some rest. We will head out at first light. We'll need to swing by the stalls and get a ride. Then we will get acquainted with our new friends. Off to bed with you. With that, Thelgrim doused the fire. I laid on a cot upstairs, but found I couldn't sleep. My mind raced with questions, wondering if any of this was real. Just a few weeks ago, I had a normal life in Manhattan. I wondered how my mom was doing, if she was searching for me. I hoped she was doing okay. I wondered if I could really do this. I didn't really feel like a hero. Before I knew it, my thoughts became so loud it was overwhelming. I had to get up. A walk might help me settle my mind. Getting dressed once again, I headed downstairs. The air was crisp with lightness to it. Surprisingly, night didn't get very dark and underhill, due to its phosphorescent glow from the rocks and minerals that scattered the ground. I walked up to the river where Alloran and I encountered the nightmare of a dragon. I shuddered, recalling it. The still air began to chime like a thousand wind chimes, clinging simultaneously. Barely audible, my attention focused on where it was coming from. I saw in the distance a blue ball of light dancing up and down and bobbing left to right. I'd read about these. They were called wisps, and were rare. It's said if you follow them, they will guide you to where you need to be. So I began to follow them. Down the road, it took a sharp turn into a forest of strange trees. I peered under a branch before ducking inside, and into the strange forest I went. I followed the wisp for some time, till we came into a clearing where it vanished, just popping, much like a bubble made of soap and water did. In the clearing was a small grassy moor. Light shone through the trees, bathing the hill with an ethereal glow. The light began flickering, and then vanished, just for a moment. Above me came a loud screech. My heart began to pound, as something big descended down toward the hill. And toward me. Chapter 5 Alden. I was terrified. Did the dragon come back to finish me off? I didn't know if it was too late and hid behind a boulder jutting out from the grassy knoll. I watched stupefied as the beast descended. When it landed, it made no sound light and graceful. The light of the moon shone through the trees. I could see the beast in its full glory. 
though I had no idea what it was. It had the head of a stag. Its antlers were prominent and large, glinting with the sharpness of a well-honed steel dagger. Its forefront remained stag-like, from its chest to its clothing hooved forefeet. However, its back was like an eagle's, large taloned back legs and a plumed tail. Its lengthy wings rested flush against its side as it stood atop the knoll. Its fur looked like moss with its brown and green coloration. Its feathers blended well with its soft and spiky fur. Its feathers ranged from brown to opalescent white. It was unlike anything I'd ever seen. Come out, boy. I can smell your fear. Not only that, your footing isn't stable. You're going to slip. A voice echoed in my head. As the voice spoke to me, I lost my balance, falling backward. Not sure if this beast was friend or foe, I grabbed a loose rock before shooting upright. Drop this stone. I may be a periton in appearance, but it won't be dining on your heart, boy. My father raised me better than that. The periton spoke telepathically to me. Periton? Eat my heart! Father! I was aghast with confusion. Ah, a simpleton. Come closer, boy. I am Alden, lord of this forest. My race is known to be twisted and depraved. However, I am only a half-breed. My father was from the noble race of the Griffins. He raised me like a griffin, taught me right from wrong, and gave me the ability to speak. Alden transferred his thoughts to me. And how do I know you won't eat my heart like you said? I spoke nervously, taking a small step forward. Because, boy, if I were going to eat your heart, I would have done so already. We Puritans are remarkably quick. If it were my brother Alistair, you would not be so lucky. Check my shadow if you like. Alden spoke, turning his body to the side as his shadow cast onto the ground. Its shape was very different from his own appearance. It looked rather like a bunny. I... I... I don't understand. It's a rabbit. I said, darting my eyes between Alden and his shadow. I looked to my hand. It was still raised, clutching the stone. Decidingly, I let it fall to the ground. My kind shadow depicts our last meal. Normally that would be a human. It's somewhat of a delicacy, I'm told. I, however, eat rabbit. Which may be why I haven't gone mad like most Puritans. You humans and your chemical and junk-filled blood. I believe that's why my kind eventually falls to insanity. But enough of that. Why have you come to my domain? Did the villagers send yet another to try to kill me, as they so often do? It seemed as though Alden had his own worries. No, I said frantically. You see, I couldn't sleep and there was a wisp. I followed it here and then it disappeared. That's when you came, I said looking back at Alden's rabbit shadow, which seemed to take on a life of its own, gliding on the knoll as if it were hopping around. I see. His voice boomed in my head. We are fated then. I will honor this as my father would. Tell me, boy, what is your endeavor? What do you seek? Where is your path taking you? Alden cried. I guess I'm a guardian. I'm supposed to save all of Underhill, but I really don't see how. I drowned as I scratched the back of my head disbelieving my own understanding. Well then, Guardian, I pledge my fealty to you. I have a score to settle with the new self-proclaimed King of Underhill. He bowed toward me, before settling into a resting position in the grass. I stared in shock. I just made friends with this magnificent and albeit terrifying creature. I'd say eat your heart out, but that's a little too close for comfort. Well... Are you just going to stand there like a deer in the headlights, or will you be riding with me? Alden interrupted my thoughts with his. Wait, 
What? My mouth dropped. Get on, Guardian. We have a monumental task to undertake. You're wasting time standing there mouth agape. With an outstretched hand, I walked to him cautiously. I let my fingers glide across his broad neck. His fur felt very much like the moss it resembled. I climbed onto his back. Nervous, I didn't know where to put my hands. It felt only natural to hold onto his backward curving antlers. So I reached for them hesitantly. They were cold and hard like iron. Alden didn't protest. Confidence surged through me. Okay, I can do this. It's like a big, fuzzy green holly. No big deal. Don't compare me to some man-made conscription. Alden's thoughts boomed. You heard that. I leaned forward, looking at him, embarrassed. Of course I did. Your mind is very loud. Now hold on. He stood. And before I knew it, we were jettisoned toward the moonlit sky. Flying above Underhill was exhilarating. I could see Bramblehaven lit up with lanterns on each dwelling. In the distance, I could see cities and small towns. Mountains, lakes, swamps, even oceans. One place seemed to call to me like a distant memory, like a song I've heard once before. It had a sense of familiarity to it. Within the forest, miles from where Alden and I met, there was a swamp alight with bioluminescent mushrooms the size of redwood trees. As I gazed upon it with wonderment, I had a strange sense that it, or something, was staring right back at me. I shuddered in turn, leaning forward. There! I shouted to Alden, pointing toward Thalgrim's smithy. As you wish, Guardian. Alden echoed as he dove toward the shop. Underhill truly had its own ecosystem and weather patterns. A world within the world. I don't think I truly believed any of this was real until this exact moment, flying between the two parallel planes. The amazement and awe I felt surged through me like lightning crackling through a cloud. It felt like seconds before we landed outside Thalgrim's shop. I began to dismount from Alden, patting his neck as a sign of thankful appreciation. My feet on the ground, I turned around to see we were surrounded. Thalgrim, Alloran, and Grip came running out, startled from the commotion. The faces, however, were stricken with a combination of fear and anger, similar to the face my mother made when I scared her playing in the street right before she would scold me. What were you thinking bringing that... that thing back here? Alloran shouted, pointing at Alden. Relax, he wants to help. I tried to reassure them. That thing cannot be trusted. They are bloodthirsty monsters. You know what they eat, don't ya? Thelgrim spoke with fierce agitation. It's not what it seems. Here, just look at his shadow. Offensive and frustrated, I pointed to Alden's silent and constant companion. The shadow rabbit stood on its hind legs as if it were looking back at us. His left ear twitched as if it were listening. Before getting back on all fours and hopping about, grazing on the shadows of the grass. Thalgrim and Alloran stared wide-eyed in disbelief. Grip, on the other hand, had remained unconvinced. <laughs> He's probably a terrible hunter and can't catch anything but bunnies. <laughs> Grip laughed hysterically, slapping his knees. Enough! Alden's thoughts boomed, and I could tell everyone heard it by the stunned faces. I can catch anything with ease. Allow me to demonstrate. Alden, in a show of quickness and agility, flipped Grip onto his back with his antlers. The periton began bucking like a wild bronco, sending Grip sprawling through the air into a nearby pile of hay. Grip emerged with a defiant look in his eyes doing his best to spit strands of hay from his mouth. Well, wait a minute. You can speak griffin toots? Alan questioned, shaking off her dazed look. My father Crichton taught me. Alden said, keeping his eyes affixed to Grip, who was silently mocking him. Whoa, you mean to tell me the great griffin Crichton, the last king of the forest, 
the protector of the Dryads, the hero who ended the Goblin Sprite Wars, that Crichton was your father? Elgum said, running his hand nervously through his hair. Since my father's passing, I am the king of the forest. Alden's thoughts ablaze with mournful anger. All right, all right, I don't mean any offense now. Valgum put his hands up. It's almost done. We'd better get a move on. Alan interrupted as she pointed toward the horizon. Right, you two come with me to the stables. We'll get ourselves a ride. Elgum ushered Grip and Alwyn to follow. They were only gone momentarily, but when they returned, I tried as hard as I could to stifle my laughter. Felgrim astride a Clydesdale, Alwyn straddled a Corinne, and trailing behind them was Grip, riding proudly on a goat. <laughs> Laugh it up, surfacer! Grip's demeanor changed as he snarled. We set out heading west in search of the life tree and the hideout. Mounted up and westward bound, it wasn't long till we reached a rocky outcrop sitting below a mountain range. In the midst of the outcrop stood the most magnificent tree I've ever seen. Each branch held up a different fruit, its leaves varied in size, shape, and color. It was as if every season was combined into one living plant. Life Tree was a perfect name for it, because it bore a great array of life. It seemed to glow with a golden sheen, strong, sturdy, and vibrant. Alden kneeled to allow my dismount. I headed for the tree, my feet slipping slightly on the gravel. Getting closer, I could see the bark had a familiar softness to it, like a cedar, but its color varied like a Hawaiian rainbow eucalyptus tree. I knocked three times gently onto the tree. The golden light shot from it like a crack in the pavement. It bolted toward the mountain. At the summit, a cavern rumbled open. Peering inside, there was a large building made of semi-precious stone with hexagonal glass domes, towers in all four directions, outlining its stone-shaped appearance. Grabbing the golden door knocker, I rapped on the oaken door, and we waited for an answer.